So I want you to re- want to rewind you a little bit in my life story. Um, before I was a, a church pastor, I, I was a youth worker, and I was a youth worker in a variety of tougher parts of the city of Glasgow um, over over three or four or five years. And even when I took my first pastoral job, then there was still some youth and community work I was doing alongside that. And here's what I learned. One of the significant things I noticed was that boundaries matter. Authority matters and it's important for us to have, so it was important for the young people I was working with to have clear boundaries, to have a clear understanding of what was expected of them and, 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 and what their behaviour ought to be. And, and actually, in some ways, they found peace when those boundaries were provided. The opposite was true. When chaos ensued, you saw them getting more and more worked up and you saw more and more turmoil in their life and more and more distress. Also, when I was growing up, one of the things I observed was I love watching sport and I observed the difference between two sports that I really enjoy watching. I loved watching um, rugby and I loved watching football. And it was notable for me as a young boy growing up and observing the behaviour of, of players towards the referees in both of those sports that there was a distinct difference. Whenever something, a, a call went against uh, one of the football players, the, a group of them would immediately crowd around the referee and argue. In rugby, it was quite different. The, the referee was much more in control. You had giant men speaking to tiny referees, calling him sir and apologising for any misdemeanour or any words spoken out of turn. And what happened was, what we, was discernibly different was the, 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 the rugby game, although there's a level of physical brutality about it, admittedly, the, there was a much greater tone to and a much better tone to the game. All that to say is that boundaries matter, authority matters, and how we respond to that uh, really uh, will will determine in su- to some extent how our lives go. And, and so what we're going to turn to this morning is to see the authority of Jesus and how much we need that. And, and that, doesn't always, that, that doesn't always sit easily with us. We, we don't like being told what to do. We don't like having to answer to other people. And and we see some of that in the news. We see some of that in the people who surround us in our workplaces. Maybe we we see that in our own lives in regards to when we're asked or told to do something we we don't want to do or we don't like doing. The, the bottom line is we don't really like the idea of being surrendered. But the, but but if we're honest and if we examine our lives and we really see how they work and we see how they are aligned with certain things, we we see that we we would see that we give things authority in our life all the time the, the challenge is the the things we choose to give authority to the things we uh, we allow to have some sort of leadership or 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 some kind of rule or to direct or to 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 be the boss of our lives it, it, it always seems like it's on our terms but the reality is those things will still have a capacity to run out of our control. And, and if you're anything like me, and I guess you probably are, there's something about your response to authority, which is actually more about what your heart says about your desire for control. So, so, we, so we come to John chapter 5. And, and last week we, we hit pause on the video, um, if you like, of this, of this scene. Jesus has just healed the man by the, by the pool called Bethesda. That man then goes and identifies Jesus to some angry religious leaders. And, and we, we see between the, the first report where they're, why are you carrying your mat? And the man saying, well, the guy who told me to get up and walk told me to pick it up and carry it. 
So we see a curiosity there, but that curiosity, the, 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 those angry religious leaders go from being curious to being furious in what we see happening next. It says, it says, it says that they were persecuting him. That's what the, how it's described. The, verse 16 of chapter 5 says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They were persecuting him, it says. And that word persecuting is a really interesting word because it describes something, it paints a picture for us, um, which in our English language does, isn't necessarily really evident in comparison to the original language of, that it was written in. The word persecuted here describes pursuing or pressing forward or following in haste. Basically, they were hunting him down, chasing him down. They were, it was a, they were saying, let us at him. Let us at him. They were, they were pursuing him with all they were. And, explain, and it explains to us why they were persecuting. They were after him because he was doing these things in the Sabbath. Their argument with Jesus at this point was that he was working on the Sabbath. Uh, and, and that really was rooted in the Sabbath commandments. So commandment number four in the Ten Commandments. From, and I, I, you can find that in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, which say, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, it says, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, so as you sit there, just say, let's, let's try something. Hands up in your house, in your living room just now. Hands up in favor of the weekend. Hands up in favor of the weekend. And I know it's a kind of strange time. And in some ways, all the days are merging into one. But they're still, if you're homeschooling, kids, if you're homeschooling, hands up in favor of the weekend. Or... Or hands up in favour, bank holiday weekend, hands up in favour of having a day when you don't have to work. I think we all love that, right? We all love that. I, my hands up in favour of that. We, we love that idea of rest. We love that idea of holiday. We love the weekend. And even better when we see something like this where we're actually instructed to rest from work. I was, I was speaking to my next door neighbor uh, who's a primary school teacher the other day and he was saying that he'd received an email from his head teacher forbidding him from sending out work to his school kids, uh, the, the school, to the school kids in his class uh, because it was a public holiday and it was an in-service day and to observe those things. So he'd been instructed not to work and I, I think we all love that idea and that's what God has done here. Why and why and we have to ask the question: Why has God done that? Well, the clue is in the last sentence that we read. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God gave this day as a blessing. It was to serve as an opportunity to freely focus on Him. That was a goal. It was a day of rest and a day of worship and a day of and a day of being reminded actually that the world continues to exist without your efforts and without my efforts. That's a really important thing for us, friends. It was never designed as just another day off work, but rather it was designed to allow time to think about God's work and God's work and God's worth. It was a good thing. It's interesting for me. God gave us two things. He gave us our need for sleep and he gave us the necessity of Sabbath to open our eyes to the reality that he is God and you and I are not. God gives us rest because we need rest and he invites us to find our rest in him. And he, so he gives us rest ultimately as a reminder that we can rely on him and so we can rest in him. 
And there's something massively freeing about that when you think about it. The problem was that the religious leaders had turned that blessing into a burden. They had added all kinds of loopholes and extra and, and, and extra elements and extra clauses into the law that had been given. They had a little checklist of things you were and weren't allowed to do, which the man had fallen foul of by carrying his mat through the streets of Jerusalem because you weren't allowed to convey anything, carry anything from one place to another, which is remarkable given, as we said last week, the extraordinary circumstances that were happening here. They'd made a thing of release into a thing about rules. And Jesus is confronting that just by his presence and just by the power he was displaying. So so the religious leaders caught up with Jesus and they accused him. They they accused him, they persecuted him. As we say, they, they accused him. Why are you doing these things in the Sabbath? What they were really asking, on whose authority are you dragging, are you doing those things? And on whose authority are you dragging guys like the paralyzed man or the the used to be paralyzed man into it? Jesus answered them, "Was was a guy healed in the Sabbath? Isn't that evidence that my father is still working? If so... Look look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. If it's true that the healing of the paralyzed man is evidence that my father is still working, well, if God's still working, if God the father is still working, then I'm still going to be working too. And I went, ooh, burn. That raised the temperature immediately. It says says in verse 18 that that's why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They, They said, we really want to kill you now. They wanted to kill him all the more. So it wasn't just uh, let me at him like it was earlier. Now it was, I really want to kill him. We really want, we need to deal with this man as severely as possible. Now it's confirmed they really want to kill him. And we're saying, well, what raised the temperature? What, what, why was there suddenly this spike in temperature? What, what happened? Well, what happened was it wasn't about the Sabbath anymore for them. It was not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, now they understood that he was even calling God his own father and that he was making himself equal with God. That's what verse 18 tells us. He was making himself equal with God. And that's the thing about Jesus. And maybe you're finding that as you're listening to him, listening to John's gospel as we're spending time in it, the temperature around Jesus is always raised when he begins to reveal his true identity. It was true then and it is true today. When people start digging into what Jesus says, when people start digging into what Jesus says about who he is, it creates questions from us and confronts things, some things that are real about us is that we see ourselves in comparison to Jesus, is that we see how different Jesus is from us, how holy and how powerful and how majestic he is and how different and how much we need him and we don't like to admit that. When we realize that he is the Lord, he is the creator, he is the one who is overall, then we, there's something about his box against that because, because we, and we're back to the authority thing, because we like to be the one who's in control. We want to be the one who's calling, we, I want to be the one who's calling the shots in my life. And, and so we want to keep Jesus at arm's length or, we, or, 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 or he, it puts us into conflict with Jesus and what he calls us to. So with all of those things this morning, we're going to be thinking about three things the authority of Jesus reveals to me. And to help us with that, we're going to hopefully hopefully you found your way to John chapter five by now. So we're going to read these things together and then we're going to see what they mean for us. Uh, This is what God's word has to say to us this morning.
Remember, we're coming off the back. They were wanting to kill him because the, because he was making himself equal with God. And this is how Jesus replied. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honour the son just as they honour the father. Whoever does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This, is so, this idea of what Jesus' authority reveals to us is so important because we tend to think uh, about authority as taking something away from us. Jesus' authority actually offers us something which is far beyond anything else that we allow authority in our lives, just now any material or temporary things to have. And you say, well, what, what times of things does the authority of Jesus reveal or offer to me? What kind of things would be described by that? Well, the authority of Jesus Christ reveals to me, first of all, he offers me the, the work of God in my life. The, 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 work of, the, the authority of Jesus Christ offers, me, offers to me the, the work of God in my life. So, so the interrogation is in full swing. They are all, probably already figuring out where to take Jesus to stone him. Breaking the Sabbath was bad enough. The claim to be God the Son was the absolute gravest sin. To consider yourself or to even to suggest that you were equal to God was, the, was, 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 was heresy and blasphemy. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, he's saying, whenever he says that, uh, do you remember? He's saying, listen up, listen up. He's saying something with authority. These things are true, truly, truly. Here's the first principle, God is at work. That's the first thing he says, truly, truly, God is at work. I'm not doing these things of my own accord. That's what he says. Do you see it? I'm not doing these things of my own accord. I'm doing these things because these are the things that the Father is doing. These are the things that God the Father is doing. These are the things that we are working on together in the mission and the purpose for which I came. Jesus is dealing with a challenge to their interpretation of the law that wasn't new to them. The, the challenge that the religious leaders had when they were coming up with all this little checklist of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, they, they, they recognized there was a theological tension with those things. Because after all, doesn't God work in the Sabbath? Doesn't he keep the world revolving on its axis? Doesn't he allow his life and breath? Isn't there new life that comes in? So does God work in the Sabbath? Or or did that first Sabbath establish a pattern for God? Even even. Even what was that the rest from? It says in Genesis 2 verses 1 that his rest was from the work that he had done. It wasn't a rest from the sustaining work of the universe. It was a rest from the creating work. So he rested from creating. Did he rest or does he continue to rest from upholding the universe by the word of his power? The answer must be patently no, because we still have life and breath. 
And the religious leaders had long wrestled with this and tried to explain it away. So understanding that God is the sustainer of the universe, the the essential hub to all existence, posed a problem for those religious leaders and their Sabbath laws. To to the extent that they reverse engineered their laws to God, they, they, they concluded, well, God doesn't go outside. God doesn't go outside. God doesn't carry things. God doesn't go outside to carry things. So, so it's still legitimate for us to pro- prohibit people from doing that. There's something faintly ludicrous about it, just trying to find a loophole or trying to find a reason or an excuse for being able to impose the rules on people. So God is still at work in the Sabbath, giving life and breath and holding the world together. And Jesus is saying here, like father, like son, I am about the same work. I am doing the same work as the Father. And I'm not doing it on my own accord. This is God the Father and God the Son, me working together on this. That's what Jesus is saying. So if this is what the Father is doing, it's only fitting for me to be doing the same. Now, if you have any experience of being a father, you realize that having kids who copy you can be one of the most humbling things. But it was also one of the most joyous things. The joyous part is when you're able to show them how to do something new and their faces lighting up when they get it. The the humbling thing is when you see them mirroring some of your negative character traits and and, and they're pouring that out all over one of their siblings. There's something humbling about that because it's hard for you to get mad at them because really they're reflecting something that you've modeled to them. There's something massively humbling, but something also potentially joyous about all of that. And, and, And I think it's safe to say that there is some aspect of the image of our parents, the image of our fathers, which which are reflected in us and passed on to us in some ways. We, we, we follow things that we, that are modeled to us. So, 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 the, so Jesus is really drawing on this idea of that father-son relationship or the, the apprentice, the, the, the kind of apprentice picture that, that is contained within the, that father-son relationship and maybe re- reflecting something of the father-son relationship that he had with his earthly father, Joseph. I'm doing what I saw my father do. What, what the father does, the son does likewise. For Jesus, in, in earthly terms, it was going into the family carpentry business. But in the true, truest sense of his father-son relationship, the most, in, in the eternal sense of his father-son relationship, he is primarily about and singularly about the work of his heavenly father, God the Father, as God the Son. So he's, Jesus asked a question, is my father is effectively asking the question, is my father subject to your Sabbath rules? So the answer to how they'd already concluded was, well, no, he's not. Well, if he isn't, then, then it's the son. That's, that's really the, the conundrum he's placing in front of them. And, and Jesus was all about the work of his father. Compare the disciples chat his chat with the disciples in in Samaria after the Samaritan woman had left the well to go and tell her whole town about what the conversation she'd had with Jesus John 4 34 my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work Jesus was all about his father's work or consider the testimony of John the Baptist about what he understood of the relationship between God the father and God the son in John 3 35 the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand or, or flick, back, flick back again into John's gospel, away from where we are just now, into John 3, 17. 
This is how Jesus explains to Nicodemus about his relationship and purpose. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So there's the picture of God the Father and God the Son working together for that purpose of the salvation of people like you and me, if we would receive him as Lord, if we would allow him to have that authority over our lives. If we would allow him to rule and reign, if we would surrender to him and the salvation that he offers. The authority of Jesus offers me the work of God in my life. It's a reminder that God does not rest from offering me rescue, redeeming me from sin, and allowing me to rest in his promises. That's why he, 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 he has he, he invested his only son in that purpose. The authority that Jesus has means that God's work in your life is not restrained by human restrictions. God doesn't work by our rules. He isn't held, by, he isn't held up by your hang-ups. He won't be stopped by your stubbornness. Just look at verse 20, would you? For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. The father and son delight in the work they are doing together. There is a joy in this this saving work that they are doing. The son knows the purposes and plans of the father and has invested himself in pursuing those things. The result of all of that is a remarkable grace in a life like yours and a life like mine. The wonder, the wonder, and we should wonder, that God would willingly work in a life like mine and, and a life like yours. What like, allowing, what like allowing a paralyzed man to pick up his mat and walk? Well, that's a, that is an amazing thing. But Jesus is talking about something more and further and deeper. Just look what it says. So that you may marvel. Greater works than these, so that you may marvel. It's like Jesus is, it's, Jesus is saying to them in that moment, do you, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying to them, this is just the beginning. You think that was amazing? You think healing a paralyzed man was amazing? There's greater works coming and they're going to blow your mind. What comes next is going to rock your world. Do you, I wonder, do you think the healed man is still there or is he scarpered somewhere to get away from the crossfire of what is going on or has he stayed there curious to see how it all works out, to see what his healing has started to, to hear the end of the debate? I wonder if he was there, did Jesus, it was, did, did he almost get a sense that Jesus was saying, what happened in your life was great, but there, but there's something greater that I came to do. Does the penny start to drop for that man? That's what Jesus is talking about where he goes to him and to say, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Your eternity is at stake. You see, the sympathy of, and the greater work is maybe summed up in this way. The sympathy of Jesus heals infirmity. He, he cares for you and he loves you and he wants to help you with the things that matter to you in your life. He, he, there's a sympathy, he is compassionate and he's merciful and he loves you and he cares for you. The, the, the sympathy of Jesus heals infirmity, but the supremacy of Jesus removes iniquity. The, the sympathy of Jesus heals infirmity. The supremacy of Jesus removes our iniquity. His, we need his authority to authentically transform our lives. That is the marvelous mercy of God in your life. That is a wonder that God would work in lives like yours and lives like mine. His authority offers us something authentically life transforming. So he offers us 
the work of he offers to offers as the work of God in my in my life. He offers me the second of all the willingness of God to change my life. The willingness of God to change my life. So what is this amazing work that Jesus is talking about? Well, we understand it's more uh, than making the paralyzed walk. How about making the dead live? More more than making the, the paralyzed walk, how about making the dead live? That's what God intends to do. Look what it says. For, the, for as a father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. God intends to give life to the dead, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, just as he holds our existence in his hands, the son shares that. He holds my and your eternity is in his hands. It says here that the son gives life to whom he will. Wonder, do you understand what that is saying? Is that Jesus has the power to change your life by being the only one who can truly give you life. God is willing to change your life and Jesus is his chosen means of doing so. And part of that involves God the Father giving, his, giving the role of judge to God the Son. So just think about this, the context of this whole conversation and all that's going on here for a moment, would you? Jesus is effectively, so Jesus who will one day judge all of us is effectively standing and not for the last time in a religious court. In front of a group of people eager to bring the full weight of their judgment down upon him. The one who will ultimately and eternally judge them. It's a remarkable scene, really, that John is painting for us. At the end of, and, and, and it's, a, it's a helpful reminder. He's, he's, he's telling them, as, as he's standing in front of them, he's reminding them, and it's a good reminder for us, he's telling them that the full extent of eternal judgment has already been entrusted to him by God the Father. A judgment that far exceeds and far supersedes the judgment that they, would like, they, they wish to bring down on him. It is that that at the end of all of this, Jesus will be both the one who judges you and I and his accusers here in in John 5. At the end of this, he's the one who judges us and he will also be the singular significant factor upon which we are judged. What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is at at the end of all of this, you're going to find yourself in front of the one who was marred by the sin and rebellion that marked your life. That's what happened in the cross. The Bible tells us that, God's word tells us that he carried your sin and my sin onto the cross. You're going to find yourself in front of him, the one who was marred by the sin and rebellion that marked your life, whose life is the measure, measure yours will be judged by. Our, our lives will be judged by the holiness of God and whether or not we have, we, we have any sin marking our lives. Jesus had no sin that marked his life. So that is the point of comparison. Now we're good at comparisons. We're good at comparing ourselves and saying, I'm not as bad as, as that person. I've never done what that person did. But ultimately the, the, the sole standard for judgment will be how we compare to Jesus. That's the, the standard. That is the standard of holiness by which our lives will be judged. So at the end of all this, you're going to find yourself in front of the one who is marred by sin and rebellion that marked your life, whose life is the measure that yours will be judged by. 
yet in whom is the mercy that allows his life to be what the one that yours is judged for. And that's the amazing thing about the gospel, is that although your life deserves to be judged by the standard of Jesus' sinless perfection, the mercy of God and the love of God allows his sinless perfection to be applied to, to your life so that when you have trusted in his salvation, his life is what you are judged for and not your sin. And all of that happens because he allowed himself to be made sin so that you could be made as if you had never sinned. So let me just read that whole thing for you again. Marvel at this. This is a great work. This is what Jesus is going to do that will give that gives cause for us to marvel. At the end of all this, you're going to find yourself in front of the one who was marred by the sin and rebellion that marked your life, whose life is a measure yours will be judged by, yet in whom is the mercy that allows his life to be the one that yours is judged for, because he allowed himself to be made sin so that you could be made as if you had never sinned. And the question in that moment is this, and, and the question in that moment is going to be this. Did you honor him in your life? Did you recognize him as, did you recognize him? Did you, did you receive him as savior? Did you regard him as Lord? What did you decide about Jesus? We've asked you that a few times over the course of these last few weeks. What are you going to decide about Jesus? Earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter one, verses 11 to 12, we, we read these words that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what he offers you. Do you see that receiving him is, to all intents and purposes, about acknowledging who he is? You belong in him when you believe in him. When you believe in him, you're gathered up into all of his sinless perfection. And that's what covers you and that's what stands for you. So Jesus, Jesus says again, truly, truly, listen up. Trust your heart and the totality of your life to this truth. Where, do, where does this eternal life come from? It comes from believing in Jesus. It comes in believing in his name and trusting in what he has done for you. God is willing to change your life. Despite the fact you have constantly challenged his authority in your life and his chosen means of doing that is through sending his son as a sign of his love, as a sacrifice for your sin and in order to secure your eternity with him. Don't you love for that kind of love? Do, do you see how much you need that sacrifice? Don't you desire that kind of eternal peace? That's what Jesus' authority offers you. Just look at what it says in, just look at what it says in verse 24. When we believe in Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He has passed from death to life. It's an amazing thing when we've trusted in his name and we are saved by his work. We have passed this is an existing reality in our lives. When we've trusted Jesus, when we've believed in his name, we have passed from death to life. It is Mind-blowingly, it's a, already a fact of our eternal existence. Theologians talk about the already and not yet of God's promises. And that's what this is describing. Here's a truth that we can have. 
here's a truth that we can have. The security has already been made real by God's grace to us. God has made this real in your life if you believed in Jesus. It's already real. But we haven't experienced the full and awesome reality of it yet. That's the not yet piece. So it's already year real. We have the security. That's a, that secure, eternal security has been secured by God's grace to us through Jesus. So that's the already but we haven't really, we haven't expected the full and awesome reality of it yet. That's the not yet, but we will. And that's where we place our hope. And that's what we find great joy in because we believe the promises of God in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is reminding us of and telling us that his authority is, third thing, the final word of God that brings eternal life. Jesus is reminding us that his authority is the final word of God that brings eternal life. You need that authority in your life. I need that kind of life-changing authority, an authority that overrules my disobedience, that leads me beyond the lies of sin, that directs me away from the destructive desires. I need God through Jesus, by his word, to speak clearly into my life, to direct me away from the things that I would, the, the things that I allow rule and authority in my life that would destroy my life. So he says again, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So again, truly, truly, listen up. Listen up. You can stake your eternity on this truth. An hour is coming and is now here. Does that sound familiar? Remember, Jesus already said that to the Samaritan woman. So he's saying again, the same as he did before, these are things that are to do with eternity future that are standing in front of you, staring in the face. He's saying, these are the things that that I'm going to bring. These are the things that are to do with me. He says, the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. Jump forward a little bit to, 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 and we will see in, in verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do not marvel at this. His voice raises the dead. And if you're anything like me, it's hard for you to marvel at that. It's simultaneously remarkable when you consider the inadequacy of your voice. So, for example, if you're a parent who has ever tried to direct your child from in front of the television to the dinner table then you'll marvel, at how, marvel that a voice can produce such a radical transformation. Or if you've ever tried to verbally communicate anything at all with someone who's looking at their phone, this feeling will be much the same. How pathetic my voice is. And yet how powerful his voice, how attractive his word that would draw life out of death. There's an old, there's an old hymn that describes how God works in salvation. He speaks in listening to his voice, new life the dead receive, the mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. And if you're honest, and if I'm honest, we are all those things. Spiritually dead, mournful, broken, poor and humble in the presence of the almighty God who is holy and created the heavens and earth, who made you and who made me and is worthy of having authority over us as the creator of us. Just think about it for a moment. He spoke and the paralyzed man walked. Yet he's saying here he has even greater power to speak life into the lives of those who believe in him. 
his speaking and the paralyzed man being healed was a taste of this power of his voice to call someone like you and someone like me from our spiritual graves. He would he desires to speak into your life. He would speak into your life and so work in your life to allow you to have him as the one who has surpassing worth in your life because he deserves that. He deserves that place of authority because he made you and he loves you and and he and he came to die for you. Note though what it says in verse 26. Both the Father and the Son have life in themselves. They don't need you. And in some ways, that's what makes God so loving. They are self-existent. They exist by themselves. They don't need anything or anyone to exist. Jesus' work on your behalf on the cross, Jesus being sent by the Father because of the love of God for you, was nothing to do with you and all to do with the compassion and mercy of a loving God who wanted to reach into your life and to save you from the destructiveness of sin. They, they don't need anyone to exist. They are life, they give life, they create life, which means that Jesus holds the key to eternal life. He is qualified to judge you as the son of God, but also as the son of man. Look what it says next. Verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So what does that mean? He is fully God and fully man. So he is able to judge as the one who exists in perfect holiness as God and also the one who lived a life of perfect holiness as a man. He is the eternal one. The, 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 the title of, a, of son of man describes the eternal one who will, who will reign and judge you and me. And the, and the key question is, have we received him as Lord? Have we trusted him as Savior? Remember what we said earlier. He was marred by the sin and rebellion that marked your life whose life is the measure yours will be judged by and in whom is the mercy that allows his life to be the one that yours is judged for because he allowed himself to be made sin so you could be made as if you had never sinned. Your relationship with Jesus is the difference between an eternal sentence and eternal security. Your relationship with Jesus, let me say that again, your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with him, is the difference between an eternal sentence and eternal security. His voice will sound, it says, and out of the grave will come some to resurrection of judgment and some to the resurrection of life. That's why we are saying that Jesus is the final word of, of God that brings eternal life. Listening to his voice now as he calls you, gives you, gives you the security of knowing that you will live with him forever. That's what his authority offers you to work in your life in such a way as to change your life, producing good works that bring him glory, that bring him the glory he deserves, rather than the evil works that stack up as evidence of a heart that isn't transformed by grace and has chosen another authority altogether. He wants to work in your life in such a way as to change your life and to secure for you eternal life. The last verse is telling you and I that we're going to end up in front of Jesus one way or the other. That is designed to be a point of great heart searching for those of us still reluctant to call upon him as Lord and Saviour. But it's also designed to be a point of great heart security for those of us who have been released from sin through him as our Lord and Saviour. So this morning as we consider Jesus' authority, there is, pa there is cause for pause, pause for eternal thought and cause for eternal thanks.
Which will you do this morning? Eternal thought or eternal thanks? His authority invites you to consider what it would look like for you to make him Lord and Saviour of your life, to receive him and to find in him the security and the peace and the rest that is so often lacking in our lives when we are prone to forget all that his authority has secured for us. Let me pray. Father, we we recognise in our own hearts and want to confess just now how hard we find it to bow the knee before anything or anyone. And even right now, we recognise that the notion of surrendering to you as our Lord to give over control of our lives and leadership of our lives is, is something we, we wrestle with and we struggle with. We, are so, we, we so desire control. We, we so desire to be the, 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 the one who is setting the direction and trajectory of our lives. But Father, we pray that in these moments you would help us to see how helpless we are in the things that really matter ultimately and eternally. So just now we pray that you would help us to, to surrender our desire for control and to once again bow, maybe once again for those of us who have done it before, once again bow before you as Lord. And for those of us who have never done that before, uh, to, 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 to surrender our lives and to, to cry out to you as, for the salvation that you only you can offer. And Father, we pray even as we, as we, as we finish up just now and as we, as we conclude our services and we prepare, prepare to sing about how worthy you are, Father, we pray that you would, you would help us to remember, those of us who have trusted in you, help us to remember the great security that you give us, that, that you give us in your Son, that Jesus is the one who gives us eternal security. Father, we thank you that the eternal sentence is removed and eternal security is a promise. Help us to rest in those things this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.